0: This is Roadmap to Resilience, an audio series for professionals and families who are supporting children experiencing stress and trauma. I'm Dr. Julian Ford.
1: And I'm Dr. Amanda Zelihusky. Whether you work with children or you have children of your own, this podcast is for you. When children witness or experience traumatic events, it often means that they'll eventually have some interaction with the legal system. So that could be telling a law enforcement officer what happened to them, testifying in a court proceeding, or even waiting for a judge or jury to decide what will happen to them or their loved one. And we also know that the vast majority of justice-involved youth have experienced at least one type of childhood trauma prior to their first contact with the juvenile justice system. So in this episode, we're focusing on the experiences of youth before, during, and after their interactions with the legal system. So personally, as a clinical and forensic psychologist and an attorney, I've spent my career examining this intersection between children's traumatic experiences and the many ways in which the legal system can both help them, but also harm them. And I know Julian has also worked extensively to bridge this gap between the juvenile justice system and what we know works in trauma informed care. So this episode and discussion felt critically important to both of us.
0: And Amanda, through your dual professional background, you bring the kind of cross-system knowledge and expertise that is so essential. As a, as a psychologist, as a mental health professional, I know very little about the law, but I'm learning from my colleagues. And in this episode, we'll hear from trauma-focused behavioral healthcare providers who have worked extensively with the legal system. That includes with judges, with lawyers, with justice-involved youth, with juvenile justice facility staff, with juvenile probation officers, the whole range of people and parts of the justice system that can really impact on children and families. Later in this episode, we'll hear from a lawyer and a community organizer who are gonna talk about their work to reduce and prevent trauma in justice-involved youth. So first is Dr. Sandra Baita, a licensed clinical psychologist who has written several books and chapters about childhood trauma.
1: So I'm just thinking about a lot of your expertise with the legal system and judges and lawyers. And, you know, from your lens, what what do you want them to know about how we should be supporting kids and families that have experienced sexual abuse?
2: What I would tell them is that you really need to recall that once upon a time, you were a child too. And when you were a child, adults were those who were managing your work and you were powerless. So when you become an adult, and it looks like you are wonderful, you have the chance to just remind your own childhood what I know that sometimes is something that not everyone wants to do. That when you recall yourself being a child, you can understand better what is it like for a child to talk to an adult. Here, we have, I, I have written a paper several years ago for a book. It was a book for the legal public here lawyers and prosecutors and so on uh, and it was about importance to listen to children because here judges especially in family courts they must listen to the child's opinion when the child reaches certain age so what i said there was that listening to someone is a very simple act listening and understanding are related but they're not exactly the same thing in order to understand you really need to be able to cross the bridge and reach the child's logic. And I, I didn't know in the United States that in my country and other countries, judges feel like they were invested by God. So <laughs> they said, like, if they lose this seriousness in their face, they lose their power. They can still have power, even if they have the chance to listen to others. I actually have been training for 10 years judges and prosecutors in another Latin American country, not mine, in Uruguay. And one of the last times I was shocked by the fact that I was trying to talk about trauma and dissociation in a very easy way because I wanted them to listen to me. And I knew that for judges and prosecutors, oh, this is a psychologist, so let's think about dinner. Mm-hmm. So I was trying to be very simple. And at some point, one of them raised his hand and said, you're talking about traumatic memories. And I said, yes, and you are. And he said, I'm Dr. Jadjov. And later, another one, raised his hand and said, are you going to talk about dissociation? Are you just trying to give us this example to show us what is dissociation? And I said again, yes, and you are another judge. So I said, two judges know exactly what is a traumatic memory and what is dissociation? Yes, miracles exist, I said. So this is what we need. I know that there is people that probably will never understand, but there are others who are willing to understand if we are willing to bring them the information in ways they will understand, they can just digest. And if we do this, they will become the adults that can listen to these children in the way these children need to be listened. I'm not sure if this is too idealistic that I hope not. I to think it's possible. Yeah. I two judges and they knew what was a traumatic memory and what was dissociation.
0: Mm-hmm. Whoa, that was huge. Well, to follow on with that, Sandra, do you, have you heard from judges or attorneys that they are concerned that if we as mental health professionals raise the, the possibility or the likelihood that a tra- the traumatic experiences have affected a person, and may have contributed to acts that they did that may be legally problematic, or dissociation may have contributed. Do they, are they concerned that this is then going to be an excuse to allow someone to get away with misconduct or illegal actions? I
2: haven't heard that I can say this is something that is not in the minds of judges. Hmm. I haven't heard myself in my work I think probably they are more concerned about is the child telling the truth? Is the mother pushing the child into accusing the father if mm. the father wasn't exactly the abuser? Okay, so yeah, probably it was the father who abused the child, but what are we going to do? Are we going to separate this child from the father forever? Mm. These are the kind of questions that I, I, I listen to more often. That I cannot say that. Your concern is not present in the judges here. Mm. It's only that I didn't I didn't hear that.
1: Our conversation with Dr. Baita focused on her work specifically with child sexual abuse cases. But what she shared about listening and understanding the stories of children is so important in any case where a child is a victim or a witness to traumatic experiences.
0: Similarly, in this next excerpt, we'll hear from Dr. Bianca Harper who speaks specifically to her work with child survivors of intimate partner homicide. The larger themes that emerge from that work with lawyers and judges can apply to many types of cases that involve child witnesses and survivors. Dr. Harper is Clinical Associate Professor at the Arizona State University School of Social Work, and she oversees the Arizona Child and Adolescent Survivor Initiative within the Family Violence Center. For more details about working with children who are impacted by intimate partner homicide, check out our earlier episode on that topic.
1: You work with so many different systems. What do you want the legal system to better understand about these child and adolescent survivors and caregivers? I think I can think of many areas that we can talk about,
3: but I think just to highlight a few for those working within the legal system, being able to just understand and recognize the devastating impact that these experiences of intimate partner homicide you know the traumatic grief that follows what that does to a child how it might impact you know their behavior if they're having to talk to you know a victim advocate or an attorney or you know having to testify or write a victim impact statement whatever the case may be how it might impact that child and and caregivers willingness to engage their willingness to put their faith in somebody within the legal system if they feel as if that person is really focused on you know what they need and what they've been through so I think that those are important pieces I think certainly having legal systems be more trauma-informed or feeling centered you know being able to just have some knowledge around that that can guide practice I think is really critical and then just really having that, you know, intentional focus on safety and comfort of that, you know, of that child. We ha- we are well intentioned, right, when we're working with children, and um, but oftentimes, you know, we we might not necessarily come across as. Really showing comfort, right, to a child, or perhaps we we think we are, but we're really not, or really trying to promote, you know, that emotional physical safety. So just being able to think about these areas where the children are impacted so profoundly by the intimate partner homicide, and how that can affect the ways that they uh, perceive those that they're working with in the legal system, uh, which certainly will impact, you know, the, the ways that they're they're engaging. I think another important piece is that you know, the child's perspective, their voice should be heard to help inform decision making. And I know some of that certainly is, you know, based on age and developmental stage, you know, there's different factors involved in that. But for those, you know, those kiddos who have the ability to share, you know, their experiences or what they're thinking about or what they want, being able to just take that into consideration when appropriate, I think is really critical. And then I think this ties into what we were talking about before, resilience, but just making sure that, when children are involved in the legal system as a result of an intimate partner homicide, that they do have that supportive adult with them throughout the process, whoever that might be, and it might even be more than one, you know, one person. But just making sure that that's a priority so that children aren't, um, you know, in situations where they're just you know, with strangers and being asked questions, and you know, these other issues aren't being really thought about or you know, kind of intentionally addressed.
1: So it's clear that being a victim or witness to a crime can be just the beginning for a child with additional disruptions and potentially traumatic experiences that follow. We actually see similar patterns for youth who become involved with the juvenile justice system. There are a number of studies that have found that upwards of 90 to 95% of justice-involved youth have had at least one traumatic experience, many of whom have experienced multiple types of trauma prior to coming into contact with the justice system. However, the criminal and legal systems have really only just started to understand and incorporate trauma-informed approaches in the last decade or so.
0: So here's Dr. April Alexander, who's an associate professor in the Graduate School of Professional Psychology at the University of Denver. Dr. Alexander serves as the director of the Denver First Juvenile Justice Project, which is a federal grant-funded program providing evidence-based, culturally-informed, and gender-sensitive trauma treatment for justice-involved girls.
1: So you are working in a lot of ways at the intersection of the legal system, psychology, the criminal justice system. And so talk us through like, what are some of the ways that you see trauma showing up in these different systems, especially in your work with these different legal systems?
4: I think what I found is trauma is in so many different places. And I think it has been working with youth throughout the years and hearing their stories uh, that so many youth have experienced various forms of trauma. And that could be uh, in their home, in their neighborhood, uh, even in their schools. And so I know there's a big push right now to talk about trauma-informed care. It's almost become a buzzword in some sectors. And I think we need to sit back and take a look at what that really means. For our justice-involved youth, I I know we've had uh, so many articles by uh, Dr. Ford, myself, and so many other colleagues. We know that about 90% of youth have had some form of trauma in their background and history. Uh, And and again, these are justice-involved youth. And my question ultimately after hearing their stories is, where was the support? Why didn't they get help after these incidents of trauma? Was it failure on uh, various systems? Uh, Was it us not assessing their trauma? Uh, I'm sure a teacher might have noticed, a coach might have noticed. So where could we have had better trauma-informed care? I've also tried to move into a prevention space. Can we start talking about this with our young people, Uh, whether it's through comprehensive sex ed, whether it's just education on mental health? And so when I am thinking about kind of trauma and trauma-informed care, it's one, alerting people to the existence of trauma, and then two, trying to find out how do we assess it, and then how do we give people the resources that they really need um, in order to thrive in their communities?
0: So let's dig into that for a moment, April. You've just raised so many key points. Here's a question. I think there's a a kind of a, a common misperception that kids who are getting into trouble are just kids who are bad or kids who are going to get into trouble no matter what happens and it's really not any it there's nothing we can do about that other than just try to keep them from getting out there and doing things that they shouldn't be doing but i think what you're saying is that for many of those kids who are getting into trouble as well as those who are in serious trouble and in juvenile justice that many of them have experienced trauma. So how, how does the experience of trauma potentially lead a youth to then have the kinds of difficulties that can lead to problems with the law?
4: Trying to get everybody to change their lens on looking at these youth. Um, so whether I'm working in uh, correctional settings or I'm going into schools or I'm just reading the news, people come up to me and say, Dr. Alexander, what's wrong with them? tell me what's wrong with this kid. Uh, You're the psychologist, tell me what their problem is. And I changed my frame into what happened to them? That's the ultimate question. Um, These youth just don't engage in these kind of externalizing behaviors. That just doesn't come from anywhere. So are we taking a deeper dive into um, the narratives of these youth, the experiences of these youth, so we can have a better understanding on what's currently going on? Um, And I think that's something that we're not doing enough of. We are sending this kid out of school for having behavioral problems without seeing why. Um, Mm -hmm. Is it because they have some learning difficulties? Is it because their white teacher doesn't know how to engage with a black student? Um, Is it they're not paying attention because they're struggling with food insecurity at home and not getting proper nutrition and can't pay attention during class? I think in having that trauma-informed lens, it is taking a deeper dive into what's going on in these youth's lives and how can we help them.
0: Just a quick follow-up. So you've just listed off any number of reasons why kids might act out, quote-unquote, externalizing, as in acting out. And the, the, these are not reasons that have to do with the, the quality of, the, of the, the youth or their family. They, they have to do with adversities that youth, families, and communities experience. But what I, want, what I want to hone in on is what do you see as the role, in addition to things like insecurity, food insecurity, housing insecurity, what do you see as the, as the role of hypervigilance for these young people? because I'm just wondering how much does living with danger actually lead them to then make adaptations that can get them into trouble?
4: Yeah, I've been asking people in community this question a lot, do you feel safe? Most of us say no, uh, even as adults. And our youth are feeling the same way. Um, So when I'm hearing stats like uh, the youth in Denver metro area are carrying guns at higher rates than ever before, it's because their safety is ruptured their sense of safety and protection um, kids don't just carry guns why are they carrying guns uh, so if we're talking about this hyper vigilance why is that is it because i have to walk by gang members on my way to school um, and i'm hyper vigilant is it because of my communities just in a, a state of disarray uh, with we what we saw last year with the protest um, so we've seen these higher rates of anxiety and hyper vigilance among youth that are real, we're feeling it right now as adults, uh, whether we're talking about the COVID-19 pandemic or uh, again, the racial inequities that we've been witnessing in recent years. Um, so if I'm, as an adult uh, who has means and not feeling safe, how is a child who is facing so many different adversities feeling in this moment?
0: So what's Dr. is reminding us very poignantly is that girls, but also boys, who are in the juvenile justice system have experienced a great deal of trauma in their lives. And as a result, they're often living in survival mode. They're on edge, they're watching for the next thing that's going to happen. And as a result, we might think that they look like bad kids, but they're kids for whom bad things have happened. And they're kids who have a potential to be incredibly resilient if we can find the ways to work with them. But to do that, first we have to find ways to keep them safe.
1: Yeah, and I think Dr. Alexander's even example of the term hypervigilance is something that you know maybe a lot of folks working in the legal system are not familiar with and then are surprised in the different ways that it shows up. So as attorneys and professionals working in various legal settings, I think there's so much we can learn about trauma-informed practices from psychologists and researchers but also from our colleagues who are already centering their legal work on preventing trauma in justice-involved youth, and that are spending a lot of time pushing back against policies and practices that can create trauma. One of these attorneys is Jessica Fireman.
5: I'm Jessica Fireman. I'm the Senior Managing Director at Juvenile Law Center, and my pronouns are she and her.
0: When we interviewed Jessica, we also had the chance to speak with a colleague of hers.
3: Hey, everyone. My name is Hernan Carvente Martinez. Um, I am the founder and CEO of Healing Ninjas, Inc., and I use he, they, el pronouns.
0: You'll hear more from Hernan later in this episode and in the episodes on how communities can foster resilience and how laws and policies can foster resilience. In those episodes, Hernan tells us about the remarkable work he's doing with healing ninjas. Jessica, it's just wonderful to see you. I I had the great pleasure and honor of co-writing a chapter with you a few years ago. So I know that you know more than almost anybody about the intersection of trauma and youth who are involved in the justice system. And I wonder if you could just tell us what's happening now in the the juvenile justice system or the larger justice systems that has to do with trauma and what should we know about that?
5: Thanks for that question. I mean, I guess I would start with uh, the really significant problem that our systems themselves are typically trauma creating. We pull young people from their homes, from their families, from their communities. We put them typically in places that are scary and uncomfortable where they may be subjected to physical abuse, sexual abuse, verbal abuse. Um, And so we're starting from a premise of a system that causes a lot of harm. Um, So when I think about, you know, what might we do with the legal system to create, to move away from trauma, I think it's really requires us to totally rethink how we engage with young people and families. In some of our policy work, what we do is we identify either grassroots organizations or advisory councils early in the work who can help us define when should we take a bargain in the legislature? Is this good enough or is it not good enough? What's our real vision of what we're trying to accomplish? So really creating partnerships early so that we can have a more robust understanding of the work that we're doing, I think is really important. In the legal work that I do, it's mostly impact litigation. So we're we're filing a lawsuit, for example, on behalf of young people who are incarcerated because they're being held in solitary confinement. They're facing pepper spray. Um, they're facing all kinds of abuse. In those contexts, you know, our ethical obligation is to be led by our clients. So the you know the, the the framework of the law sets us up well um, but i think even in, in that context we can uh, connect more deeply with community organizations so litigation can only get you so far it's a problem-solving device we need to partner um, so one of the things that we have done for example is work on litigation that addresses conditions of confinement and then invite input and keep the lines of communication open with organizers who are trying to shut down facilities. That's not our job. We usually can't do it, at least through a lawsuit, Um, but we can communicate, we can share information, we can reinforce messages, we can collaborate on long-term goals. Um, So we have to be careful about it because always we have to go back to our clients and what our clients want us to do, that's what we have to do, we're obligated to do, and we should. Um, But at the same time, our clients are um, part of a larger community and they often want us to be having these conversations that are um, beyond just their individual case. Many of them have gotten involved in a lawsuit, not just for themselves, but because they want to see
1: change more broadly. You are working with individuals, you know, on an individual basis. And I've talked to so many attorneys, right, who are working with kids who have experienced trauma and like, I know that they need all these other things, and I don't know where my role as the attorney starts and stops, but I also want to help figure out ways to get their other needs met. So I'm just wondering if you had thoughts about that for what attorneys can do in those individual daily sort of interactions and relationships that they have with their clients to help when there's been trauma that's been experienced either by the child or the family? Yeah, I mean,
5: the the the, the lawyer work that I do is not the individual representation. So I don't want to pretend to be an expert in that. But one of the things that we have definitely recognized in our own work working on system litigation, that same problem comes up, right? If we're working in collaboration with a young person and they lose their housing, how can they collaborate with us? And so I think it's our job as, as humans and as attorneys to say, how do we move this case forward if what it takes is finding other resources, reaching out to Healing Ninjas, reaching out to other community-based organizations um, and figuring out ways to connect people with the resources that they need, then that's part of our obligation as attorneys to do our work ethically.
0: And can, can attorneys be trusted to do that? <laughs> <laughs> I think I think attorneys like
3: Jessica can be trusted to do that. And I think Jessica probably knows a ton of homies in the
0: legal field who will also be trustworthy. <laughs> I guess, I guess well, there is probably... an issue
5: I think that that raises, which is that you know this notion that you get a law degree and you therefore think that you have answers. You therefore think that you understand things better. You know the direction that the law should go. You know the direction of policy change. I, I don't think it's, um, I mean, it's, it's a funny question, but at base is it isn't, right? We need to have humility in our profession to be able to do this work effectively.
0: Are you saying that a good deal of your education as an attorney has come after you completed your law degree? A little bit. <laughs> so maybe there, maybe there's some things that even really, really brilliant attorneys who have masterful knowledge of the law can learn, going back to ernan to your point, by listening very carefully to the communities that they serve.
1: Well,
5: and, you know, from from back in the day when I did direct representation, I I do think that basic premise is still true. If you are able to listen to your client and really hear what they're saying and hear it in an expansive way so that you understand where they're coming from, you will be a better attorney. Um, I happen to approach that from a systems reform perspective or a system, hopefully, transformation perspective, but I think that premise still holds no matter what kind of law you're practicing.
0: So Amanda, you have training and experience as both an attorney and clinical psychologist, and you've been working for years with justice-involved youth. Adding to all the great insights from our guests on this episode, what would you say is vital for individual lawyers as well as the legal system as a whole in fostering resilience for children who experience stress and trauma?
1: I think one of the really important things that emerged from some of these conversations in this episode are this notion of of pushing back, right? Just because things and systems and policies have always been done that way doesn't mean that they're the right way. And the more we learn about trauma and the ways it shows up in children and adolescents and their behavior, the more we need to adapt and improve our systems. So, I think it's really important to be pushing in the legal system for innovation and creativity in the ways that we think about things, in the ways we create policies, in what we recommend for youth as far as programming, um, and how systems need to change and adapt. So one of the things I think I've noticed throughout my career in kind of crossing both of these worlds, is how the legal system doesn't do very well with gray, right? We're uncomfortable with that in the law. People are, you know, guilty or innocent. They are right or wrong. And and we don't do well with anything in the middle or, or unclear answers. We like absolutes in the law. Whereas in psychology and in mental health, we talk much more in probabilities. We try to take all the data and understand how it kind of comes together to get us toward what does this person need and and how do all the bits of information and sources that are sharing information with us get us to a more refined understanding of what this individual needs. Those are very different ways of analyzing problems. And so I think the legal system can really benefit from this cross-collaborative work that many of these experts kind of shared with us examples of, as far as trying to understand how the legal system can better serve youth rather than re-traumatizing them or creating more barriers for youth and their families to overcome to try to move through their traumatic experiences and, and grow from them. Again, rather than a lot of these systemic barriers that were discussed that actually make things much harder. So great examples we heard from ways that we can continue to learn from each other and some real pioneers in the legal field, I think, for how to push back against systems that really just aren't working anymore.
0: And whenever I've had the chance to learn from and be schooled by legal professionals such as yourself, such as Ms. Fireman, and advocates such as Mr. Carvente Martinez, I have just been so inspired. And my eyes have been open to the fact that even though for me, as you were saying, Amanda, Everything really is a probability, there's no absolute fixed certainty. But what I do know from legal professionals is that it's important that we focus on the absolute certainty of keeping kids out of the juvenile justice system, helping them get through the juvenile justice system when they're involved, and helping them when they are experienced as a witness or as the direct victim of crimes. When we do that, we are absolutely helping them to find a path to resilience. And that is consistent with everything that I've learned about from legal professionals. We're all looking for ways to help children and families be resilient. So we can put ourselves out of business by helping children to find a way to be in this society successfully. And when trauma strikes, they don't have to go down a path that leads them to be involved in the justice system.
1: Another great resource out there for judges and attorneys and legal professionals trying to continue to improve the ways that we work with youth in trauma-informed ways are the resources put out by the National Council of Juvenile and Family Court Judges, or NCJFCJ. And you can find lots of resources on their website, which is ncjfcj.org, about what a trauma-informed legal system looks like, including various models and specific concrete examples of how to improve the ways that you're responding to youth who've experienced trauma. And again, we'll link to this resource in our show notes and on our website.
0: And I'll just add that the National Child Traumatic Stress Network has provided some some wonderful resources as well in collaboration with the NCJ-FCJ. And those include a set of essential elements for trauma-informed juvenile justice systems, as well as very practical guides for trauma-informed approaches for juvenile defenders and juvenile prosecutors. Check them out.
1: Many thanks to our guests on this episode, Dr. April Alexander, Dr. Sandra Baita, Hernan Carvente Martinez, Jessica Fireman, and Dr. Bianca Harper.
0: Visit RoadmapToResilience.org to learn more about our guest experts, access additional videos and resources, or send us a message.
1: If this episode piqued your interest, we'd love for you to leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts and let us know what you think. And if you imagine this episode would resonate with a colleague or friend, please share it.
0: Roadmap to Resilience is a collaboration between Pandemic Parenting and the University of Connecticut School of Medicine. With special thanks to the Interorganizational Child Trauma Task Force.
1: Roadmap to Resilience is produced by my co-host Dr. Julian Ford, myself, Dr. Amanda Zella Husky, along with Carmen Vincent and Victoria Bruick. Many thanks to Jennifer Valentine for her strategic support and to the teams at Pandemic Parenting and the Center for the Treatment of Developmental Trauma Disorders for providing promotional support.
0: We'd also like to thank the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration's National Child Traumatic Stress Network for their financial support of this project.
1: Thank you for joining us in supporting children in need of a roadmap to resilience.